Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight I'm going to continue with the revelations and with the explanations about the great subject of Shambhala. I have decided this season to take it easy, to go slowly, to go into the details of it so that things can be presented in a satisfactory way. And we already, for those of you who are new tonight in the satsang, we already had two evenings, two satsangs, where we started talking about Shambhala. In case uh, you want to go into those details which were said there, of course, I hope these lectures will be sooner or later put on the internet and you'll be able to listen to what has been said. Briefly, we found out that Shambhala is the logical conclusion of spirituality and the hypothesis of eternal life. If Buddha is now somewhere, if Swami Shivananda is now somewhere, if Saint Teresa of Avila is now somewhere, then that place where they all are is what is called Shambhala. So Shambhala is a sort of a special division, special part of the invisible world where all the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas of the past are. All of them, okay, 90% of them, maybe 10% of them opted not to go to Shambhala for some reasons which we can't fathom. But generally speaking, yes, that is the idea. So Shambhala is a world, a place, a plane, a buffer, an institution. It has been called the oasis of light. Not physical, but has some communication to the physical world. And in Shambhala, there are the enlightened beings of history who interact proactively with the planet Earth. And these are the teachers, the masters, the guides of the planet Earth. And of course, if you want to put it like this, uh, as the number of enlightened beings of the planet Earth increases, then the number of people of Shambhala also increases, although that increase is not so steep. It's very, very inspiring, because if we talk about spiritual influences... We talk about things which are not human. We talk about things which are superhuman, which are transcending the human condition. But when we talk about Shambhala, we talk about our fellow men, like people who now are in Shambhala. hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, they were human beings living on the planet Earth. And thus, <clears throat> the connection with Shambhala is very powerful, it's very meaningful. If any one of you is of a Hindu orientation and you think that you have a spiritual contact with Kali, the black goddess of India, sure, but Kali is not a person. Kali is not somebody who a thousand years ago lived in India or in Indonesia or someplace like that. And therefore, 
Uh, it's one thing to think about spiritual influences which are not of human nature, and it's another thing to think that there can be a grand master in Shambhala who looks with friendship or with compassion, with sympathy upon you, and that their spiritual influence can be experienced, it can be felt. That's why if you become friends with Kali, like Ramakrishna, that almost sounds like madness for the regular person. And it's like, how is that? What is that? But if you become friends with the masters from Shambhala, that's very easily conceivable. Thus, Shambhala is a concept which brings the spirituality much closer. It's a little bit like some people say, Buddhism is not even a religion. Because what do they worship? Where is God in Buddhism? Because Buddhism is ultimately just following in the footsteps of the Buddha. Buddhism is not about God. Buddhism is about a man who made it to nirvana. And if Buddha could do it, then you can also do it. You just have to do what Buddha did. You just have to follow in his footsteps, seriously, <clears throat> with commitment. And then if he did it, why can't you do it? Why couldn't you be able to do it? Thus, with Buddha, with a person like Buddha, we feel closer. When Jesus comes, he takes a human body and he calls himself the son of God, but he also calls himself the son of man. He is human. He is the son of man. And because Jesus becomes human, it's like we can see God in the person of Jesus, through Jesus. And in, again, in a similar way, through Buddha, through the masters of Shambhala, we have a connection. It makes spirituality very close, very down to earth, near us. Other abstract spiritual, that in Kashmiri Shaivism, they meditate on the Shiva consciousness. Sure, for some of you who are a bit advanced and committed and do, the Shiva consciousness becomes part of your life. It becomes your reality through yoga, through practice. But Shambhala is a concept which is much more friendly. So, of course, it's up to you to make up your mind. You'll have to find out in your heart do the masters of the past, the great ones, do they exist somewhere? Now, now, this minute, while I'm talking. And if they exist somewhere, can they listen to you? Can they hear you? Because, for example, when you go in the Catholic Church, they presume that the saints, the Catholic saints, the Christian saints, they are awake. And they are present. And they hear you. And they can even intercede for you. So in they pray and they say, Saint Francis of Assisi, please pray for us. Saint Teresa of Avila, please pray for us. Which means they are within hearing. They are within range. And they listen to what you say. And they are not sleeping in a coma. They are Awake and active. Well, this doesn't extend only to the Christian saints. It extends to all the saints, to all the real saints of all the real spiritualities and religions. That's what Shambhala is.
what you have to decide in your soul is if for you Shambhala exists or not. Like, I can accept the idea that the grand Buddhas of the past are somewhere and that they can listen to me right now. Of course, they will not interfere too much because of the law of non-intervention, but in case I am insisting, then why not? Thus, we spoke about what is Shambhala, if there is a location of Shambhala, who is in Shambhala, what do we know about Shambhala, generically speaking, the structure of Shambhala as described by René Guénon and other great initiates. And we had reached to this subject, we had stopped last time, in the middle of this subject, which is very difficult to understand due to the modern confusion and propaganda, that there exist two forms of spiritual initiation. And here I mean both for reaching Shambhala, both for connecting with Shambhala, and also in general. And that's important for you to understand, to diversify a little bit. As you come in a yoga school, in a yoga school you generally be inclined to say, okay, the path of the yogis. I live like the yogis. But there is another path, and that is seen exactly in the structure of Shambhala. And this is where I had reached to show you that there is a classical duality, that these people from Shambhala sometimes are on the path of sacred practice, meditation, spirit, pure spirituality, and some are on the path of karma yoga, which means social implication, social involvement, that they actually act in the world, and that Shambhala has those two deputies of the king of the world. There is a king of the world, the king of Shambhala, and he has two deputies, one which is inside, or one which is in charge of the... It's like in Agama a little bit. We have a teaching department which deals with what you are being taught in the courses, but then there is also a maintenance person who makes sure that the electricity is working and that there is no rain coming through the roof of the yoga halls and all that stuff. Because as secondary as that can be from a spiritual standpoint, if the yoga halls and the whole campus of Agama would not be functional, then it would be almost impossible to teach yoga to you in spite of our good intentions. Perhaps we could turn back to the method used a thousand years ago, that the gurus lived under a tree, and then there were about 10, 20 disciples sitting under that tree, and the teaching was done in the middle of nature. As the things are today, we want to protect you from mosquitoes, we want to give you electricity and electric light and others, and that has become 21st century teaching of yoga, which is not happening under a tree. It's a little bit more complex than that. So this makes it very important to remember that this is a duality which exists in spirituality. And in every society, it existed under the form of the upper two classes of the society. In India, these were called Brahmins, and the Brahmins were the priests, the spiritual people, and the second caste, there are four castes, 
but the number one and two were the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas. And the Kshatriyas were the ones who would make the kings, the rulers. Kshatriyas would be equivalent to the aristocrats, to the aristocracy. And these two were in charge and they had a sacred duty. The same thing was in the West, same thing was in Japan, same thing was in India. Of course, because of a lot of propaganda and misunderstandings and the impurities of Kali Yuga, of the time where we live, there is a lot of confusion and there is a lot of darkness about this. But I'm talking now, first of all, about the archetype, the principle, the original principle. That's why the initiates, they are the ones who meditate, inspire, burn karma, build bridges, as I said last time I used this parable of the bridge builder, and the knights, the which protect Shambhala, and when necessary they protect various spiritual manifestations, and sometimes act like if this planet is a school, and Shambhala is the stuff in charge of the school, then in the school there are the teachers, but there is also the administration of the school. There is even one or two security persons just for extreme situations are there as well. And thus, Shambhala on one hand has the teachers, which seem to be the core of it, but it cannot function without the other side of Shambhala. So there is the spiritual power and the temporal power. And the temporal power has to be there if the administration of a school doesn't have temporal power over the school, then it cannot administer the school. It any time can lose control over the school. So as holy as Shambhala, oh, that Buddha is there, and Francis of Assisi, and Sarada Devi, and it's very, it sounds very hippie. You know, like it's, oh, it's a lot of spiritual people in some sort of rainbow gathering. But there is security as well, guarding those rainbow people. And if they have to give an indication, then there is a sort of a police of Shambhala. It's, there are, you know, there is a certain structure there. And as I said last time, when you'll have the possibility to look at the Yantra, perhaps for the next lecture, which is probably the last one, we'll have to bring the Yantra so you see it, and we might even make a demonstration of working with it. The Yantra means the geometrical symbol which has been given as the visual symbol of Shambhala. There is one in the Ganesha Hall, so you can see it in the daytime in one of the next days. It's like contains like a spiritual part in the middle, a delicate thing which looks like a flower. And then it is surrounded by a very thick black circle, which is exactly like the wall of the fortress, like a tower. Exactly as you would see a tower from above. You know, the walls of the tower is the outside of that yantra. So the priests pray but the king, the knights, defend. This is the relationship between the Brahmin and the Kshatriya from the traditional society. It has been forgotten. It has been destroyed. Allegedly, I'm going to come back to that, uh, allegedly because it had become toxic. Like one of the mottos 
of the French Revolution, when this thing started happening first, was, I forgot who was, Robespierre or one of those people who thought they were clever and then they got killed themselves in the process, one of those so-called French revolutionaries, he used to say, let us hang the last of the kings with the bowels, with the intestines of the last of the priests. Like the French Revolution was a typical destruction of priests and aristocracy. Of course, the excuse was that they, were, that they had become parasites, that they were not the correct type of priests and the correct type of aristocrats. They were parasitical priests and aristocrats, and they were exploiting the masses. But from a traditional standpoint, that is a horror, because the priests and the aristocrats, they are the ones who are supposed to guide the masses. The masses usually have IQs below 100, and they are at the level of imbecility. I can give you so many examples of inferiority at that level. That's why in the moment when a thousand people tell to Albert Einstein how to live his life, that's called democracy because a thousand people have a thousand votes. In another form of society, you would have Albert Einstein telling to those a thousand people how it is good to live their lives because Albert Einstein is wiser and smarter than all those a thousand. All those a thousand people thinking and thinking and thinking for one week, they cannot produce one idea which Albert Einstein can produce in five minutes. That's the problem, that we have a reversed pyramid. The original pyramid was God is on top, Jesus is on top, Buddha is on top, and they tell to the world, for example, the Ten Commandments, you know, you don't bargain with Moses. Moses didn't come, here are Ten Commandments which I got from God, and let's vote on them. You don't vote on the Ten Commandments, it's take it or leave it. That's all there is to it. So that's why um, Shambhala is not like this. Shambhala has a reverence towards the divine principle. And that's why in Shambhala, uh, the principles are very different from many aspects of the modern world. And uh, in India, they consider that the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, if they were true, again, every skeptical person will say, but what if those people go wrong? Yeah, if they go wrong, then they go wrong. Many things have been going wrong in the history of humanity. For example, the Vedic religion was once upon a time something brilliant. And then Buddha came and said, now it's rotten. 25 centuries ago, Buddha said, this Vedic religion has become a hypocrisy. Everybody is lying, everybody is cheating, everybody is fake. And that's not the way to go to spirituality. So the Vedic religion had become corrupted. Today you can see Christianity has become corrupted. Judaism has become corrupted. Islam has become corrupted. And many, many, many things in many, Hinduism, Buddhism, you name it, they are very much corrupted. Very seldom 
do you find something which works? We have so many stories with horrible people that call themselves gurus in the 20th century, controversial gurus, let's use a civilized word, controversial, you know, that even the guru institution from yoga is like, okay, I don't want to have a guru and so on. It's a stupid understanding. Well, Swami Vivekananda of India was dying to have a guru. Paramahamsa Yogananda wanted to have a guru. Many, 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 everybody, because the guru institution, when it is the correct one, when it is the original, authentic one, it's a blessing. It saves your soul. But of course, it is, if it is adulterated, if it is corrupted, then there is a problem. So take it with a pinch of salt, because originally, this effect of the society, that some people in the society, they choose to become spiritual. Like Francis of Assisi, like Rumi, like Ramakrishna, like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be police, I don't want to be an aristocrat, I, don't, I just want to sit and meditate and go in my crown chakra and be like a light for the whole society. Those are the people that have an inclination to be Brahmins. In the time of Buddha, to be a Brahmin was a hereditary thing. Like you had to be the son of a Brahmin to be a Brahmin. But Buddha said, no, it comes by merit. You are a Brahmin if you make yourself a Brahmin. Be spiritual, be detached, be simple, focus on the spiritual values, be sattvic in your lifestyle, and you are a Brahmin. You are a teacher. You are the person who constantly tries to see, to find out, to learn. And when people need to know anything from meditation to astrology and from rituals to you name it, whom do they ask? They ask Ramakrishna, who has been sitting and meditating for 30 years and knows is what needs to be, what, what he needs to be. So... There are people who want to do that and they become the sacred part of the society because there are many, many people who don't want to be that. They say, me? To do? Spend my life in meditation? Are you kidding me? It's like, why would I do that? Then there are people who don't want to do that but they want to do the next best. Like Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi did very limited amounts of yoga. He did some detox. Mahatma Gandhi was good on fasting, detox, juice cures, and stuff like this. But he, and sometimes, as far as I understood, he even did a Shankar Prakshalana or something like this. But Mahatma Gandhi doing meditation, Kriya Yoga, Laya Yoga, not much. Not much. Mahatma Gandhi's yoga was to write articles, to go through India to talk to people, to organize the march for salt. And Mahatma Gandhi was a very, very typical example of karma yogi. His yoga was social activism, but social activism which was strictly based on some principles. Like he based it on divine principles, on non-violence, and he respected it 
fiercely, like he took the vow to tell the truth. And one day in the party, imagine what a party is in India, at the scope of India, they were missing four rupees from the box. And he stood up in the gathering and he accused his own wife. He said, there is four rupees missing. And as far as I know, only my wife has access to the money box. Maybe she took it. Everybody clapped in on the shoulder. They said, Gandhiji, sit down. It's always missing some money. Any accountant knows that the money never fits to the last penny. It's not possible. It's simply not possible to fit them to the last. So four rupees means nothing. Like, obviously, your wife didn't bother to steal four rupees. Like, relax, man. We admire that you are so honest and so candid, but leave your wife alone. You know, she's okay. She didn't steal anything or something. No, he was so honest. Others have not succeeded. When they, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, they asked him, your African Congress or whatever it was called, you, you took weapons from the Russians, you used grenades, bombs, Kalashnikovs, your so-called anti-apartheid revolution was not non-violent because the African, they said we are going to do it like Gandhi did it in India. The only difference was that Nelson Mandela was not Gandhi and the Africans from South Africa, they were not Indians who have been born with the Vedas and the Upanishads in their childhood. And they simply did not manage. Like as soon as the British became nasty, the, the war became violent. And Nelson Mandela said, yeah, you know, but sometimes... The circumstances, it was special, they are not two identical situations. He gave a politician's answer, trying to justify violence. There has never been a justification of violence for Gandhi. Gandhi was a fanatic, a perfectionist. He was like, either we do it non-violently, or I'm not with you. Or I fast to death. These are, this is the spirit of the Kshatriya. This is the spirit of the true aristocracy. The people who are born to be leaders, but they are born to be leaders for the masses, to protect the disinherited, to protect the people of lesser capability, people who are highly educated and all that. So it's described in India like the lame and the blind. You know the story with the lame and the blind. There was a lame man and a blind man. The lame could not walk. The blind could not see. So what did they do? The blind man took the lame on his shoulders. And then the blind man did the walking. And the lame man who was standing on his shoulders told him about go left, go right. Now be careful there is. So it's a symbiosis. It's a collaboration. The Brahmins can see. Because they are the spiritual people. And they understand. If you do this... There will be negative karma. If you do this, you will break some fundamental cosmic principle and the will of God is not observed. So the Brahmins know, but they don't have the power. It's the king and the aristocrats who have the sword in their hand and they yield the power. Together, the power yielded in a spiritual way makes perfection. This is the perfect type of society which has been seen in all the cultures that like being an ideal thing. Then people say, what if the Brahmins are no longer Brahmins and they become just corrupt 
perverts who pretend they are spiritual, but actually they are as greedy as everybody else. And as then we have a major problem. That's what's happening today a lot. Because there are a lot of religious authorities, priests and bishops and muftis and whatever. And the question is, how detached are they? How selfless are they? How much in Anahata or in the higher chakras are they? What is happening if they are actually very selfish, arrogant people, full of vanity, full of pride, and full of simple defects, you know, like full of greed and gluttony and all sloth and all the capital sins from the Christian books and so on. What then? Then you have the, the warrior caste. But what if they don't listen to the Brahmins and they also become egocentric and they do whatever they want whenever they want? The Brahmins tell them, do this, don't do that. And then they don't listen and they do whatever their ego dictates. So, of course, for a society to function idealistically, it is that these two parts of the societies are perfect, that they are in good condition. Of course, in Shambhala, things are at the level of a high level, at the level of a high spirituality. I remember in the 1970s, the controversial Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later called himself or was called Osho, Osho Rajneesh, Osho wrote a brochure, he was a professor of philosophy, and he was halfway between spirituality and philosophy when he was younger, and he wrote a brochure, which he called, which is called, it's very rare because it's in his early writings, it's called Beware of Socialism, or Beware of Marxism, because in India, in the 60s and 70s, under the Russian influence and the Chinese Maoist influence, there were lots of Marxists, Hindu, Indian Marxists, and there was a social trend, and they were violent, they had guns, they wanted to make revolution, communist revolution in India. And Rajneesh answered it by writing a pamphlet called Beware of Communism, of Marxism, or something like this. And he said it very clearly. Obviously, such an idealistic society, like the one described in the communistic books, can function if the members of the society have no ego. When you look around, you see that everybody values their own personal interest above everybody else's. So Buddha, I'm sorry, Osho concluded this pamphlet by saying only Buddhas can live in communism. Because for Buddha, it's okay not to be selfish and to be detached and to surrender and so on. But for all the others, it's a utopia. And 10 years later, 20 years later, History has demonstrated that most of the communist societies, they fell apart. And now when we know the real history behind the masks, we know that most of those people in the communist societies, they were selfish. They were rulers who were abusing their communist power. And they were not communist at heart at all. They were still privileged classes and underprivileged people, even in the communist countries. Therefore, then why call it communism? Then why not let it be called capitalism, or at least it's visible that there are people who are like Donald Trump, and there are people who sleep under a bridge, you know? At least let it be seen open, don't pretend 
you are in an egalitarian society because it doesn't but again the idea was that a perfect society needs perfect people that's exactly what Jesus was asked when he said I'm preaching to you the kingdom of heaven and people said when is this kingdom of heaven going to come is it not just some utopia and Jesus said the truth is that for a new kingdom to be you need new citizens new people like the same people build the same society you can always wonder how did people elect George W Bush to be their president twice when he's a moron the internet is full of his idiotic acts and you know the, the guy couldn't spell a word properly you know and and they chose him like are the american morons 51% of the americans are how do you choose how do you elect such a person to be your boss that's why we are saying that these people have this society if you want a society like in shambala then you have to be like the people from shambala buddhas and bodhisattvas if you want a perfect society then the citizen has to be perfect it's a grassroots revolution that is required because with old people you can create only the old world shambala is made of a different stuff that's why it's so different from what is happening on the face of the earth and therefore there are two forms of spiritual initiation the priesthood to become a monk a lama a tibetan lama whatever a buddhist monk a christian monk and the chivalry the knighthood to become a knight therefore every true spirituality is therefore acknowledged and sponsored by shambala like sometimes here sometimes in a more humoristic way sometimes in a more bitter way <coughs> we complain we complain about the fact that much of the modern spirituality is corrupt like in the moment when you have a country and in that country you discover that there are 20 priests who sexually abuse little boys then you start thinking like where the heck is this thing going you know it's like was it always like this is it something which is becoming worse and worse because people have less and less faith <coughs> and they become more and more egocentric or what the heck is happening and we complain that you know people are becoming fanatic without belief with this with that and even in yoga no especially at least i don't know if i can talk i can of course but with authority about what's happening in buddhism or what's happening in hinduism or what's happening in christianity i can have an opinion i can launch an opinion but i definitely can speak about what's happening in yoga because that's where i am that's what i do that's the environment which in which we live here especially in agama <coughs> and we often say there is a lot of corruption there is there are a lot of people who claim themselves to be yoga teachers and they teach crap and then the question is how is that seen from shambala because shambala is not politically correct the masters of shambala would look and see there is somebody there who teaches this yoga 
this yoga, this yoga, and we kind of assist them. And then there is also a hundred others who are teaching crap. Can they wear our badge? Obviously not. And thus, Shambhala is actually very much aware. It acknowledges and it even sponsors the true spirituality. When the spirituality is fake, as it happens so much today, like, you know, I always give that example, the Temple of the Sun. There was an international sect with one of its headquarters in Switzerland, of all places, who in 1995, when a comet passed by the Earth, it was called the Hale-Bob Comet, those people committed collective suicide. But before they committed suicide, they cut their testicles off. They cut their balls off, and then they kill themselves, thinking that some aliens are hiding on a ship behind the Hale-Bob Comet, and they will take their souls to paradise. Not with testicles. With testicles, you don't go to paradise. But without testicles, yes, you are eligible. What is this? This is just a sect. This is just a damn cult. This is just a, a crazy thing, and it doesn't fit in any sane system of belief. It's like Jim Jones in Guyana, you know, people committing collective suicide. What is this, you know? That's not what Jesus said. That's not what the great prophets and seers have taught. That's why I always insist there are things which are authentic, and especially in the 21st century, there are also lots of things which are not authentic. They are false. And obviously, Shambhala is not going to sponsor them just because they call themselves also yoga or Christianity or Buddha. There are many, many things. Thus, remember this idea that the spiritual initiation is supported. It's, there is inspiration, there is energy into it. And also, every traditional leadership is also sponsored or governed by Shambhala. Like, are there any leaders today that would die for their people? Like King Arthur, no, the Knights of the Round Table, they wanted to die for the nation, for the people, to sacralize it. They didn't want to be spoiled rulers. They thought that they had a duty. Therefore, is there traditional leadership? No? Like, how many politicians are of the category of Mahatma Gandhi, who actually died? He fasted almost to death, and then he was shot anyway. Mahatma Gandhi, by modern evaluations, Mahatma Gandhi himself saved more than a million lives, he personally alone, because he went to Calcutta in the middle of the Muslim-Hindu riots, and he fasted to death in the middle of the city until they stopped the violence. Nobody could stop the violence. The British Empire was lost. And Mahatma Gandhi, one man, stopped the violence in the whole of India, eventually. Therefore, uh, there exists such a leadership. That's why in the old days, this institution of the king, don't forget that the king is wearing a crown, which is the symbol and the name of Sahasrara. Sahasrara is the crown chakra. 
And thus, the king was considered to be the representative of the king of the world on earth. Like the king was a proxy, a representative. You are being named the king, but you are the representative of the king of the world. Therefore, the king was considered to be sacred. Killing a king was a blasphemy, was an act against God. You'd say, ah, of course, rich people are protecting themselves. But this idea has not appeared at a time when the classes, when the ruling classes were spoiled. It had appeared at an early stage when people were enthusiastic and idealistic and pure. Thus, of course, uh, we are all hypnotized by the modern propaganda and false ideas about knights and aristocracy. And we are being told that the French Revolution was something really good because the aristocrats and this, they were corrupt. Maybe they were. But the principle is not changed by the fact that some people deviate from that truth. That's why, remember that the knights... Just to understand the Knights of Shambhala and to understand for you I'm saying this because you yourself when later, when I describe to you how do you practice these things? What can you get out of these things? How can you relate to Shambhala? You can relate to Shambhala as a monk or as a knight. Your heart tells you if you are the monk type or if you are the knight type. Are you a person who knows your Sahasrara and are a spiritual guide for people's meditation and spirituality? Or are you a person who rather does karma yoga and is socially involved and is a perfectionist, is a crusader, it's a protector, it's a person who wants to work for the good of the world? That's why remember that originally the knights, they were celibate, they were ascetic. No, some of them became corrupt, like the Templar knights, are the first ones who taught, who started performing banking, loaning money with interest, which is called usury, and it's forbidden by the Bible. The Islamic banks, even today, they don't do it. If you are a member of an Islamic bank, you borrow 50,000, you give back 50,000. There is no interest on the loan. The interest on the loan is a diabolic mechanism by which you can suck the blood from the whole world. That's why the banks and the bankers are ruling the world. Because of the mechanism of usury. Even Thomas Alva Edison, who was just an engineer and an inventor, he saw it immediately. And you should read what Thomas Alva Edison has to say about banking and usury. This thing that you charge interest on the loans of money. It was not permitted. Of course, today everybody does it. Because nobody gives a damn except the Muslim banks, which are a little bit more fanatic, a little bit more hardcore, and they don't do that. And thus, uh, the, the Templars started doing this, and they became a diabolic order. They had everybody in Europe with debts to them. And that's why the King of France and the Pope, they decided to eliminate them, because they had the financial power which was challenging the traditional society. And thus, but the original knights, they were not loaning money with usury, with interest. They were celibate, ascetic, they called themselves militia dei, 
And this was the path of the heroes. Because think about it. Think in a perfect society. Don't think about what you've seen in the Hollywood movies, which is propaganda to a large extent. Try to think in a perfect society, in a perfect world. You are the class, the social class, that is the only one allowed to bear weapons. Only the knights and the, the chivalry, they were allowed to bear weapons. Peasants were not allowed to have weapons. Nobody else was. Only the samurai in Japan had two swords. Nobody else was allowed to carry weapons. Not just to make it easy for the police to police, you know, so you don't have opposition. But what if the police becomes corrupt? What if the knights, instead of protecting the women, protecting the children, protecting the elderly, the weak and the underprivileged, they become a corrupt class by themselves? You see a scene and then somebody is attacking somebody else. You, and then you just go and take the sword and quickly, there's no time, you just kill the attacker. And then you find out that the attacker was right because the other one was a dangerous murderer and a pedophile and a monster and a serial killer. And then you say, oops. You can't say oops when you carry the sword. Mistakes are not allowed. You can't live with those mistakes. That if in a village you are the one person that has the sword, it's a terrible responsibility. If you are an idiot, of course you don't care. But if you are a person of principle, then it's like, my God, the knights, not to do mistakes, they were spending the whole night lying on the floor like this and praying to Jesus. Guide my hand. Inspire me. Make me not be selfish. Maybe because it's a responsibility. I am the only one who is allowed to have a weapon and maybe even kill with it. In the name of God. And if I do something wrong, I'm fried. It's not a joke. It's like, oh, it's nice to have power. It's nice, but what responsibility comes with it in a real understanding? And thus, the, this chivalry, you need to understand it, because with spirituality it's clear. We can say people like Ramakrishna, people like Milarepa, people like Rumi, they are sacred. They sit there, they meditate, their heart chakra opens, their crown chakra opens, they are in communion with God, they are in nirvana, and they are sacred. And then if Buddha opens his eyes and says, you should stop drinking alcohol. Then you listen to Buddha, right? Because he's speaking from God. He is in a high state of consciousness, and he knows what he's speaking. It's easy to understand this. Of course, the modern society doesn't even respect this. Like, even this, yeah, yeah, sure, Buddha, what does he know? I have problems, man. I am stressed out. My girlfriend has abandoned me. And that's why I'm getting sloshed and drunk, you know? That's not an excuse. You are just, you are selfish. And you just try to find an excuse not to listen to Buddha. Actually, Buddha is right. But because we lost our respect to our spiritual values, then, ah, fuck Buddha and his stuff. He is so stuck up. He is such a square-toe puritanic guy. You can have a little bit of tolerance and all that. So, it's easy to understand that. 
but with the chivalry, with the kshatriya, with the second order, it's even more difficult to understand because so much abuse has happened in the society. And uh, that's why this leadership has to work only when it is subordinated to spirituality. Like the king listens to somebody who is enlightened. For example, in the 10th century, Abhinavagupta, the great tantric guru, Abhinavagupta, one of the greatest spirits of Indian history, Abhinavagupta was invited by the king of Kashmir. How? The king of Kashmir sent an emissary and he said, Sir, Abhinavagupta ji, we don't have an enlightened being in Kashmir. And that's why we heard that you are the real deal. We'd like you to come and live in Kashmir. Like a country without a saint in it is like a man without his head. It's like I, the king of Kashmir, from whom will I take wise counsel if ever times are becoming very difficult? I need to have a Brahmin. I need to have a man with his Sahasrara open so that I can take counsel from him. So he said, I'll build you a house. I'll give you a piece of land. I will give you monthly salary, money. So you don't worry about your financial or material worries. Please just come and live in my country. Bless my country with your presence. You just living in my country are a blessing for that country. This is the relationship between the king who is a knight and Abhinavagupta, who is a Brahmin, who is an initiate uh, spiritualist. And that's why it has to be subordinated spiritually. For example, in Japan, when you see now many, many movies, uh, there are many movies which glorify the free samurai. Even Akira Kurosawa, the great filmmaker, is keeping on making movies about so-called ronin, the Japanese word for masterless samurai. But that takes advantage of the fact that you are not Japanese and you don't know Japanese history very well. The ronin were considered to be the garbage of the society. Samurai means to serve. And Bushido is the path of the samurai. It comes from Buddha. Bushido is the path to Buddha. So you serve Buddha. The samurai were religious people who saying that if I do karma yoga like a samurai perfectly, when I die, I reach enlightenment like Mahatma Gandhi. And therefore, being a warrior, it was for the salvation of your soul. But that it had one condition, that you had to surrender your will to your master, to the daimyo, to the feudal lord. And if the feudal lord will tell you go, you go. And if the feudal lord will change his mind after five seconds and say stop, you stop. And if the feudal lord tells you die, you die. Then it's Bushido. But if you don't have a master, then you become Ronin. Because then you are guided by your own ego. So a Ronin is a selfish samurai. And the real samurai is a samurai who has given up his ego. 
This distinction is super important to understand the fact that there can be a chivalry, that there can be a leadership, there can be an action which is subordinated to spirituality. That's why the samurai, they were not mercenaries or fighting egocentric hooligans. No, oh, let's go. Like Kurosawa has this famous movie, The Seven Samurai. Those seven samurai are seven hooligans without serving Buddha. It's very interesting that this appears as a rebellion in Japanese culture, like, ah, fuck the old patterns and so on. Let's do something new and original and so on. The chivalry was the quest of the Holy Grail. And although Dan Brown says that the Holy Grail is the womb of Mary Magdalene, in all the history of humanity, Holy Grail is considered to be the symbol of enlightenment. The knights were searching for enlightenment. This was the Holy Grail. And thus, old kings, as I told you last time, they lived like monks and saints. Charlemagne, the king, the French king of the Holy Roman Empire, he was living in a monastery, sleeping on canvas, like dressed in the coarsest cloth that existed, not in silk, not in gold, not in... He was living in prayer in a cell. Because, for example, when you are a king and somebody attacks your kingdom, then you have to defend it. And I, the king, have ordered kill 10,000 people. How am I going to show myself in front of Shambhala? How am I going to show myself at the, fi- at the last judgment in front of my guardian angel and in front of God? I just ordered 10,000 people to die. If I was not doing that right, I'm fried. I go straight to hell. In Thailand, they say that this is one of the ultimate tests that a soul can receive, that you are getting to be made king. And then can be seen how are you going to use your authority and your power if you are a king and everybody listens to you. Are you going to lose your common sense? Are you going to start abusing? Is it true that absolute power always corrupts? Would Jesus be corrupted by power? Or would Buddha manage to hold his common sense and his golden middle even if he had all the power in the world. We are talking about the matter of principle, and that's why this is the symbol of the sleeping king, the the, symbol of the decaying values and loss of the traditional truths, that there is a sleeping king of England who was the original one and pure. Arthur is sleeping in the island of Avalon, and he will once upon a time come back and save the nation. It's not only Arthur. In Germany, it's Frederick Barbarossa who sleeps somewhere. In Denmark, it's Holger Danske who sleeps in the Kronborg castle and will wake up when the time will require. Even in Romania, people are invoking the presence of Stephen the Great or one of the great rulers of the past, that they are just sleeping, but they will come back when the real danger is there. The sleeping king is exactly this archetype. Of course, there are deviations and they are overdriven 
because of propaganda, starting with the French Revolution and with the foundation of the United States, somebody in these political organizations which exist around the world is trying to constantly undermine this idea that there could maybe exist sincere spiritual seekers and not just perverted priests that bugger little boys and that there could exist sincere knights and kings and not just spoiled aristocrats which are ripping the poor classes which are exploiting the poor classes. That's why, of course, you see a Robin Hood, an Ivanhoe, a Rob Roy, and others, but you have to ask yourself, who wrote those books and made those movies? Were they people with an intention behind? Like, is Robin Hood or these kind of things, are they maybe propagandistic literature because they are trying to undermine something? Or are they just honest things written there? Anyway, I just wanted to call your attention on this. It will come later in some of the initiations which can be taken. But remember this, that Shambhala is not only spiritual power. Shambhala is temporal power as well. That means Shambhala actually has power over this planet. They don't show it, except in some extreme situation. They don't show it because, they, as I told you from the first time, they practice this policy of non-intervention, of staying invisible. I'm telling it to you. Half of you will believe it and will realize, wow, Shambhala, I can be friends with Shambhala. I can one day maybe go to Shambhala. I can be part of a perfect world or near perfect world. And some of you will say, ah, yeah, I've heard many legends. That's just another spiritual legend and so on. That's precisely because I cannot bring Shambhala right here on the dais in front of you so that you can touch it like Thomas and get convinced of it. It's a very delicate subject in which you have to make up your mind where you stand about it. I can give you all the information which is allowed to be given, and I can give to you also all the historical evidence to show you that this is not a joke. It's a joke which is giving you goosebumps because it actually does happen. It did happen. It happens all the time. It's anchored on our planet. The next thing which I would like to underline for you in this lecture is the fact that Shambhala, because it is as it is, for every spirituality for every civilization, then it's like an archetype. It's like we always copy Shambhala. That means Shambhala appears in every genuine spiritual center. Like every religion has a holy land or a holy city where it's the center of the world. Either the center of the world is called Jerusalem or Lhasa for the Tibetans, they honestly believe that that's the center of the world. Or it is Rome for the Christians. Everybody has a center of the world. Sometimes it's a mountain. It's Mount Kailash. It's Mount Meru. It's, Mount, it's a mountain or a city which is the center of the world. Why? Because Shambhala is the center of the world. But it is exactly like you have the sun, which is the center of our solar system, 
And then you have the earth. The earth is also the center of something. The moon is orbiting around the earth. So the, the earth is like a little sun to the moon, while it itself it is subordinated. So Rome, or Jerusalem, is a copy of Shambhala, of the city of Shambhala. But they look for the ignorant like a center. And that's why in the moment when you proclaim that this is the center, it reacts to the primitive brain. People subconsciously, unconsciously, know they can feel that there is something to it. Like, you know, the Pope is always in Rome. Travels a little bit, but most of the time in Rome. That's the center. It's like the bull's eye. It's like the center. In the old days, it was very difficult to go to the center physically. Like in the 10th century, to go to Jerusalem from Italy was like only one third of the people made it. The others died on the way. And that's why, because people could not go, what did they do? Is all the Catholic cathedrals, they have a labyrinth in front somewhere. On, in one of the entrance rooms or in front, on the floor. There is a labyrinth and you have to walk the labyrinth. It's part of the ritual. Walking the labyrinth is like you go to the center. That's the famous Greek myth of Ariadne and her thread that the guy had to go to the center of the labyrinth and he could not find a way. What's in the center of the labyrinth? Your soul, that's the center of you, and Shambhala, which is the center of the world which is the essence of everything. And that's why um, when you walk in the labyrinth, when you go to the center, it's not only initiates that are there, but also the guardians of the Holy Land, the militia of God, the knights. Like if you go to Vatican, there is not only the Pope, there is the Swiss guard also that guards the Pope. In Shambhala, it's the same. There's this double thing. And people are very easy to say, yeah, we can understand uh, spiritual power. Great Buddhas, meditators. It's more than that. It's actually the temporal power is also there. Only it's not used because it's no need to use it for the time being. Humanity is just rolling along its parkour and Shambhala is just holding its horses for the time being. Thus, however, just to see that this is not always so, there is a famous prophecy in Tibet which says that when the end of Kali Yuga is coming, the evil forces, the demonic forces, will be, which may happen in 10 years or in 300 years, the evil forces, <coughs> but soon, like we are close to the end of Kali Yuga, we just don't know exactly mathematically how close. And the Tibetan prophecies, Tibetan lamas who saw it in the future, as images of the future, they said that in the moment when these demonic forces will become too strong, <coughs> and the last aspects of spirituality will be threatened with extinction, then the armies of Shambhala will come forth. The king of the world will give the signal, and then suddenly... The armies are like legions of angels. The heroes of the celestial armies, they will manifest 
in ways which are completely incompatible with modern military power, something which surpasses the military understanding totally. Like there is not even a challenge to overpower, like, oh, but we have atomic weapons. It means nothing compared to what Shambhala can produce. And thus, this is why uh, this part of Shambhala is very surprising, that Shambhala is not just some gutless, oh, there are some monks doing this. It's a little bit like Shaolin. Shaolin were monks, and then they were destroyed. And what did they do? Then they learned martial arts, so that the second time nobody can destroy them again. No, it's like in Shaolin. They are monks, they meditate, they go for nirvana, but they are some of the best martial artists in the world as well. So, if needed, they can also kick hard. And therefore, this is the story with Shambhala, only it's taken to the next level. So, Shambhala is the center, is always symbolized like the center, the center of things. And I have here a paragraph in which I said to speak to you about the symbols of Shambhala. And Shambhala is intimately related, first of all, with the idea and the symbol of the pole, especially the North Pole. The yogis claim that the energy coming from the North Pole is spiritual, and the energy from the South Pole is less spiritual. It's like light and darkness, yang and yin, heaven and earth. So there is more heaven in the North Pole of a magnet than in the South Pole of a magnet, if you want to put it like this. And therefore, uh, the, when you go north, the energy becomes more spiritual. That's why they think that the first physical location of Shambhala 20,000 years ago was somewhere in the far north. They called it in the old days Tule. And this was unfortunately a name used by Hitler and the Nazis in their propaganda with the Aryans and so on. And today Tule is a village or a city in Greenland. There is a city in Greenland called Tule. No, precisely because it's like the extreme north. You cannot go further north than Tule. Tule was a name for the city of Shambhala in Satya Yuga in the Golden Age. And the Greeks called it, I, say, I spoke about that, but I just need to connect things, so that's why inevitably I repeat it. The Greeks called it Hyperborea. Borea, like in Aurora Borealis, Borea means northern in Greek. And Hyperborea means beyond the north. The north Boreas is the north wind, beyond the north wind. The Greek historians say if you go north, it gets colder and colder and colder and everything is covered with snow and ice. And then if you go a little bit further north, it becomes green again and as a special climate. And there live the Hyperboreans who, according to the Greeks, were four meters tall, blonde, living a thousand years and all that. It is from this story about Hyperborea that unfortunately some modern political movements like the Nazism of the uh, Third Reich, they took some Scandinavian mythology and they turned it into some political doctrine. And today it's becoming like, uh, you don't really want to mention that. It's kind of politically awkward to mention it. Metaphysically, this is correct, and it, was, it is not afflicted because some idiots 
have misused it politically and militarily. The, the origins are exactly in this Hyperborea, and it comes from the fact that the north is spiritual. That's why the yogis prefer to do yoga facing north. Even when we build these yoga halls, most of them face north. It is only the Shiva hall which faces east because we could not find the position and east is second best. You have to do yoga facing north or east in Shakti hall, in Ganesha hall, in the Shambhala hall and in the Enlightenment hall, the teachers always stays to the north part of the hall. And in Shiva hall, because of the geography of the campus, the teacher stands or sits to the east of it. Because you always do yoga according to the energy of the earth. And the spiritual energy of the earth is north. Why is it north? And thus, I'm simply saying that they have something with the north star and the north pole. Like Shambhala is like the north star, like the pole star. The whole universe seems to be spinning around the north pole, around the north star, the pole star. That one is like the center. The whole world is spinning around Shambhala. Shambhala is in the center, like the sun, and the whole world is around Shambhala. Shambhala is the center of the world. That's why the king of Shambhala is not called the king of Shambhala. It's called the king of the world. Because Shambhala is at the center of everything. And the traditional symbol of the pole and of the sun is very politically incorrect because in India, as well as in Scandinavia, is the swastika. The swastika, the whirling cross, is the symbol of the pole. And that's why in Tibet and in Japan, where in Buddhism, they used lots of swastikas. And in India as well, the swastika being a reference to the center of everything. And that center can be the sun, like the sun is in the middle of the swastika, or Shambhala, the pole star, is in the middle of the swastika. And there are two ways. One of the swastika is turning clockwise, and the other one is turning counterclockwise. And the counterclockwise is yang. And yang is the heavens. So that's the spiritual one. And that's why the counterclockwise vastika is considered to represent the Dharma and the pole. And thus, um, it's a classical symbol of Shambhala and the Tibetans used it a lot. Unfortunately, as you know, in the 20th century, some people used the vastika in political and military ways it became very hated as a symbol. In India, there you can still see swastikas. If you come in my house, I also have two swastikas in my house. And uh, I think uh, Michele gave me once a swastika symbol uh, put in stone from India. You know? But it's not because I'm a Nazi. I'm not a Nazi and I'm not a neo-Nazi. And I'm not preaching uh, racism or anything like this. It's simply because the swastika in India, it's full of swastikas and everybody who goes is shocked in the beginning. Because for them, swastika is a symbol related to Ganesha, to prosperity, to order of the universe, to Dharma and to other such things. 
And for example, the Tibetans, they always had both swastikas. The throne of the lion, where the Dalai Lama was sitting in Lhasa, had two big swastikas. Today, Dalai Lama doesn't have the swastikas on the throne, in Dharamsala, wherever he is, because it's provoking, it's very provocative politically, and he doesn't want to do that, but actually this swastika symbol was associated to Shambhala. So just, you know, uh, not only as a Buddhist symbol, I remember reading that uh, the great and controversial Russian mystic called Rasputin, Rasputin, very few of you know that because he had some strange powers and so on, he had been initiated in Tibetan Buddhism and in some forms of Tibetan medicine by a Tibetan Lama who was living in St. Petersburg called Badmaev. And this Badmaev, um, it's, it's well known, like this is, these are stories which are very well known, and uh, this Badmaev initiated Rasputin in some Tibetan Buddhist practices. And because of this, Rasputin loved the swastika, because the Tibetans loved the swastika a lot, and because of this he gave it as a protection symbol to the wife of the Tsar, to, to the Russian empress, to the wife of the emperor, the Tsarina, or Tsaritsa, or whatever uh, you call her, and she put it even on her Bible. Like when they discovered her Bible, on her Bible, on the first page of the Bible, there was a swastika. And every time when they were moving, the royal family, the imperial family of Russia, when she got into a room, like in a hotel or a place, the first thing which the empress did is she drew a big swastika on the wall for protection. Like that was her yantra of protection. And in 1911 or something like this, the Tibetans were allowed to build in St. Petersburg one of the biggest Buddhist temples in the world, it was built there, and then ten years later, Russia had become communist, and then that temple was kind of neglected. I visited it in the time of communism in Russia, before 1990, and it was used as a biological deposit. It was used as a storehouse by an institute of biology, so I could only see it from outside. It, now it's, I think it's reopened, if I heard correctly. No, there is a Tibetan temple built with Tibetan architecture, like not vertical walls, but trapezoidal walls like this, in the middle of St. Petersburg somewhere. No, and that was, why? The empress of Russia was a Christian woman. It was a Christian country with a Christian family. What were they doing with Tibetans, of all people, being given money and land to build a huge temple in the middle of St. Petersburg? There were connections which the history doesn't mention. You don't learn about them in school. But remember that the empress was drawing swastikas for protection because swastika is like the symbol of Shambhala and of the sun and of the dharma, of the law, of the, of the righteousness, of the rule of the universe and so on. And that's why for Shambhala, sometimes even a swastika can be used. Like those of you who know a bit more yoga, performing Trataka on a swastika, which is counterclockwise, actually can work as a resonance with Shambhala. It's like a yantra for Shambhala. There exists a yantra, a seal of Shambhala, which is the one which I mentioned and which I'm going to make visible. I'm going to ask the organizers to bring it for the next uh, satsang. So there is a seal of Shambhala, a yantra of Shambhala, 
which I'm going to speak more about the seal of Shambhala. What's the seal of Shambhala? Oh, this yantra is a seal. But it actually, it was involved physically with some things. Like Shambhala even owned, among others, many other things, but among others, books. Lost books. Some of them apparently coming from Atlantis. Some of them coming from before Atlantis. We don't even know what. And those books are physical books. They were on planet Earth in a physical place. And we know that some of them were preserved in secret Tibetan libraries. And even the Tibetan lamas were not allowed to go in and read them. Not to mention that most of them were written in languages which nobody could understand. Languages from 50,000 years ago which nobody could understand. And these libraries existed. There were people who saw them and they were inside room, like let's say this is a Tibetan monastery, and then there is a, see, a room, and everybody knows in this room, on confidence, we have entrusted some books from Shambhala, which we are not supposed to see. We just hold them for them, because they trust us. And on that door, the door was sealed, and there was applied a seal. That seal is that thing which you see in Ganesha Hall. That thing in Ganesha Hall was applied on the doors. And there are people who saw it with their own eyes. And they claim that one of these libraries was taken over by the Chinese in 1950 when they took over Tibet. That the Tibetans managed to evacuate all of them except the one in the palace of the Dalai Lama because they postponed with Dalai Lama until the last moment because they hoped that Tibet can stay independent. And then... When finally Dalai Lama escaped, they did not manage to get rid of that library. And that library went into the hands of the Chinese government. And we don't know what has been done with it. So there is a seal of Shambhala. There is a yantra of Shambhala. There are visual symbols which can be used in the yogic way. Any one of you who has done the level three of Agama Yoga has learned, at least as a matter of principle, Laya Yoga how to use colors and geometrical shapes to get in resonance with that thing. And therefore, uh, these things are the object of great depth and great mystery. I'm just going to continue a little bit more by talking you first, therefore, this great place called Shambhala, so powerful, but so discreet, so spiritual, such a perfect utopian world made of Buddhas. What society would a hundred... If you have a city of a hundred thousand Buddhas, how would be the mayor of that city? How would be the police of that city? No, like what, what do you expect at that level? And thus, the next question which comes here on my list are the activities of Shambhala. The first and foremost is the activity of initiation. Like, for example, Shambhala knows that even religions slowly die. Jesus Christ came. There were a lot of people who loved him. They became Christians. For a thousand years, the Christians were very fanatical or whatever you want to call it. Then they started becoming more egoistic, more materialistic, less faith, 
less this, until Christianity today, 2,000 years after Christ, is the way you see it. Christianity could be called easily decadent today. It's not as fresh as it was 18 centuries ago. Therefore, Shambhala is dealing exactly with this, like it's looking down and sees how is spirituality on earth. What needs to be done? Can something be done? Is there a need for more spirituality? And of course you say, oh, but there always is a need for more. Yeah, but it depends on people. Are people asking for it? No. The fact that uh, 50 people want to participate to a satsang, while 5,000 people are in pubs and restaurants, sure, then we can give an opportunity to 50 people to hear about Shambhala. But there is no need to send somebody to take care of 5,000. Because those 5,000 are not even asking. They don't use their free will to ask for anything. And thus, initiation, the spiritual initiation, this is the main worry of Shambhala. But of course, together with it, there come lots of collateral other things. For example, <laughs> Shambhala is dealing with the regulation of the planetary evolution, mainly at the level of the so-called egregores, or national souls. Like Shambhala is following the rise and fall of nations, exactly as you see the life of a person. A person is young, gets adult, powerful, old, weaker, and dies. The same thing is with nations. I don't know if you've noticed. Like right now, there are a couple of nations which are really strong. But there are a lot of nations which were strong 500 years ago, or a thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago, and they are not that strong now anymore. How strong is Italy today compared to the time when it was the Roman Empire? How strong is Greece today compared to the time when it was the time of the classical Greek civilization? And by powerful it means <coughs> how powerful culturally as well. I'm Romanian and some of you are French and some of you are German and I'm talking to you in English. Do you realize what I'm saying? Like both you and I had to learn English. Although English is not my native language and it's not your native language. Why? Because we are conquered by the English. This is the time when the Anglo-Saxon culture type is ruling the world. With internet, with everything you need. It's the power. The British Empire, not only that it became so big that you can't, the sun was not setting over the British Empire, but it survives in spirit still. I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's up to you to decide if the British Empire was a positive entity or a nasty entity in the history of this planet. But the point is that it has not been there a thousand years ago. And the bad news is it's not going to be there a thousand years from now. Nothing lasts forever. The Greek culture didn't last forever. The Persians rose and decreased. The French were the cherry on top of the cake 500 years ago. And no more, no more. No, it's an old country. These are old souls. There is the concept that countries have a soul, like a human being. And this soul is young, 
old and dies eventually. Even countries don't last forever, nations don't last forever. And when Shambhala thinks about what's going to happen in the next 10 years, it thinks in terms of the national souls. The national souls are like, now you are strong, now you are this, now you are that. And this is a very magic story with the egregores and the national souls. Very seldom Shambhala deals with individuals. Because individuals are generally unimportant. Maybe Albert Einstein was important because he produced some huge changes. A few individuals are important every century because they produce some ground-breaking things in human history. But in general, like the Prophet Muhammad, was the Prophet Muhammad in, important? You bet. Look how much has happened in the world in the last 17 centuries, 13 centuries, 14 centuries, because of the Prophet Muhammad, and still does. Therefore, obviously, Shambhala knew that the Prophet Muhammad was a VIP. But a million peasants from the villages of Europe, nobody even remembers their names. So Shambhala doesn't deal with that. Not because of disrespect, because of course Shambhala respects the individual and the spirit. But they deal with a mission. And that mission, for that mission they have to be efficient. And therefore they use efficient methods. That's why you hear in the teachings about Shambhala, this thing that it deals with whole nations and with trends at the level of the whole nations. And of course, as I told you, Shambhala is not interfering with human history within certain limits. When the kids are about to blow up the school, then the teachers have to step in and not allow to the kids to blow up the school. That's off limits. That's too much. But until that point, the teachers can pretend they don't see what's happening and let the kids do. If they run and they fall, they have learned a painful lesson. So you can allow them to run around and hurt themselves and so on, because it's a way of learning lessons, even if it's more painful. So Shambhala does not curtail human experience, but it still has some limits. That's why Tibetan prophecies say that there will come a moment in the very end of the cycle when things will be pushed to such a limit that Shambhala will feel like it needs to interfere. And then, in the last minute, it is exactly like what the Christians call Armageddon, the final days, the final war, that at the time the angels of God will come and will imprison the demonic forces and throw them to the bottom of the earth in chains. That The Tibetans say that those angels are the armies of Shambhala, are the legions of light of Shambhala, which will interfere at one final point in the history of humanity. So, let us resume these two ideas, because then I want to get to the historical things and to the specific features of Shambhala, concluding with the practical advice, you know, for like from all these 
teaching, what can you get practically, and what can you learn in Agama, and what is available in these things. Like, what can human beings do? Is this just a beautiful story which enchants your heart, or actually one can do something about it? So, where is Shambhala then? Shambhala is both a subtle place, because dead masters, the souls of dead masters are there, but it's also physical, because they choose to have a physical crossing point just for interfering easier. I'm repeating again, the three mages who visited Jesus, they came physically and greeted baby Jesus. Physically. Although they were coming from Shambhala. And thus, there is a possibility to come from Shambhala and to go to Shambhala. That's why great people, they even try to get to Shambhala But of course, it's not allowed. Like Shambhala says, you are on planet Earth. Live your life. You are not from Shambhala yet, at least. Live your life. Fulfill your Dharma. Die. And then your soul might go to Shambhala. Then you'll become one of us. But for example, there are people who claim that physically people are coming and going from Shambhala. As I told you, the Dalai Lama said, now I anticipate because this is already when we get concrete. And when you get concrete, it becomes scary because you realize, oh, I mean, this is not just a story. The Dalai Lamas had two visitors from Shambhala every year. On a given date, two people on horseback, on horseback, they were coming from Shambhala, from the north of Lhasa. And they talked and they were, you know, greeted with hospitality. And after a couple of days, they took their horses and they went back to where they came from. (coughs) But funny... Shambhala, if you imagine a little bit the geography of Asia, if it's north of Tibet, then it's east of Afghanistan. The great Gurdjieff was educated in a monastery, in a Sufi monastery in today's Afghanistan. And then when he finished his education there, and they noticed that he was indeed a very spiritual person, (coughs) and that he had accomplished the spiritual goals, they allowed him to go to meet with the masters of the world. And Shambhala, um, Gurdjieff described as he went east of Shambhala, east of uh, Afghanistan. He doesn't say anything about what was there. And he says that when he came out of there, he came south and he came to Lhasa. And in Lhasa, they immediately realized somebody coming from nowhere in the north can only come from Shambhala because there's nothing else there. Today, there are some villages belonging to China in the very sparse, but still, that in those days, nothing lived there, nothing existed there. And thus, um, there is a physical location, and there is a point of physical projection. And as I told you, this gate is moving according to the yuga and circumstances, like the rumor which circulates in the initiate circles is this. As long as Shambhala could defend its presence without arousing too much ado, it did. There is a story of a geographical British explorer who tried to go there, I mentioned it, and who simply could not. They could stop a British geographic explorer. But in 1950, when Tibet fell to the Chinese power, and especially in 1960, when the power came completely on the Chinese 
on the Chinese uh, administration, then if Shambhala would have kept an outpost, a hamlet, a village, in the middle of today's China, you can imagine that the communist armies fanatically would have tried two times per day to go in there and see what the heck it is. Because, of course, Mao Zedong cannot afford to have in the middle of his country a spot where he cannot go. And that would mean that so many million people would have to die or something that the secret of Shambhala cannot be held. And that's why, of course, the other thing happened. Shambhala stopped, switched off that point and took it away. And there remained a few buildings somewhere in Gobi, but they don't mean anything because Shambhala doesn't have its launch pad there. And therefore, the contact of Shambhala with this planet in 1960 or so, it has moved away from Tibet. And the question which everybody is dying to ask is where is it now? Nobody will tell you openly this. But I can tell you a very strange story which circulates in the conspiracy circles on the internet that... Apparently, the Germans, with some Tibetan support or something, Shambhala we're talking, they had been building flying saucers, circular flying objects, like airplanes, the size which are round based on another principle. They are called Vril machines and so on. There's a whole story. There's a guy called, what is his name? I forgot. Anyway, there's a guy who wrote a couple of books, but they are substantiated by documents and other things. Like, it's not just a hoax story. It's based on some very, very disturbing evidence. And all these disappeared. The Allies never found a single one of those. There are many mysterious things made by the Germans in the Second World War, which the Allies never found. If you are curious to get a scientific view, there is a physicist called Louis Powells, who was a disciple of Gurdjieff, and there is a French journalist called Jacques Bergier, Louis Powell and Jacques Bergier, they wrote a crazy book in the 1960s, which, would, which makes your hair stand on an end. That book is called Le Matin de Magicien. It's called The Morning of the Magicians. It is translated in English. The translation is not very brilliant, in my opinion. It would be preferable if you can read it in French. But wherever you read it, if you like mysteries and if you like to be puzzled, like Jacques Bergier was a Marxist journalist. He was a fighter in the La Résistance. He was a, a guerrilla fighter, a partisan fighter in occupied France. Like this guy was not a space cake. The other guy was a solid scientist. Powell's and Bergier, just read that book and you will be in shock of what they write in just that single book. But it's not the only one. There are several others. <clears throat> Once you open that door, uh, that box of Pandora, you will be shocked about what you will discover <clears throat> that you have not learned in school. So what's the story there when you go from there? Those fly, that's not only in Jacques Pauls and Bergier. There, very little is said about this. Later, in other books, this is written. Uh, the guy who wrote this book was Jan van Helsing. He copied the name of the exorcist from the Dracula movie. Jan van Helsing is the pseudonym of a German guy 
who wrote some books about this as well. And there are others. This is existing in, in quite a bit of literature. Um, there apparently was a huge American naval catastrophe in the end of the Second World War, after the end of the Second World War in 1946, which was hushed down, and there are archives which are being pointed to, and the names of the Admiral Byard of the American Navy and the memoirs of this guy, because they were told that there were surviving German Nazis or something in Antarctica, in the south. Because there, there was a slice of Antarctica which belonged to Germany, which was called, of course, Neuen Schwabenland. Just a good German name. And the American Navy area, air carriers, you know, aircraft carriers went there and all their airplanes were destroyed in less than 10 minutes by flying saucer like looking objects. So some people said that Shambhala moved from Tibet together with some German thing. Why the Germans? Why were the Tibetans friends with the Germans? And it's like when this is the hate object of the whole world and so on. In Antarctica and from there nobody knows where. There are all sorts of legends and rumors. Some we say that was in a mine shaft. This thing was in a mine shaft in Colonia Dignidad from Chile. There appeared recently a movie last year called Colonia or the Colony about uh, this place in Chile. And uh, some people say in an extinct volcano in the south of uh, Venezuela where actually Marconi went, the famous Marconi, the inventor of radio technology, went and physically disappeared. In conspiracy theories, it is mentioned that Marconi is one of the few famous people who, like Diesel and a few others, just disappeared. There is no skeleton of Marconi, as far as we know, anywhere. The story continues. It's a very, very big, but uh, it's a very, very big story. But like some people say that there could exist a very secret crossing point of Shambhala still somewhere. But of course, it's never going to come on the first page of the newspapers. Like if there are a hundred people who know about this, they would prefer to die rather than tell you, unless they are told to tell you, unless they are given the permission for that. So there is a whole story about the fact that Shambhala has a physical thing. It doesn't really need it, but for making things easy, it keeps a point of contact. I would like to tell you more about the libraries, the technical marvels and the other things which are in Shambhala, but that will come next time when we go to the next level of this. So I still have to speak about what is in Shambhala, a few specific features, and then finally to go to the provocative issue of the historical evidence, historical and other sorts of evidence, which shows that actually we are talking about something that everybody knows and nobody talks about, precisely because it's subjected to this law of silence. And in the end of this, in the next satsang or in the second satsang from now, when I will conclude, I'm going to tell you about the practical methods, like you as a person, <coughs> if all this sounds like madness to you, then go home, sleep, 
wake up in the morning, don't remember anything, and just go on living your life as you lived it until now. Don't get disturbed by this. It's just a mad story told by some mad people in spiritual circles. It's not affecting you. But if you are a person who is touched by this and who feels who wants to go into this direction, then automatically we in yoga, we are practical people. We don't only teach you that you have an Ajna Chakra. We teach you how to energize your Ajna Chakra so that you can feel it and that you can use it for practical purposes. In a similar way, we don't just want to talk to you about Shambhala, like let's fill up our evening with some nice story. Shambhala is a real thing and it exists concretely in the lives of the yogis and there are yogis who worked on this, especially the Tibetan yogis because they were the closest one in the last 2000 years, but not only them. I'm going to show you how much in the world spirituality has been and is connected to Shambhala. So that's the object of what we are going to talk next. It's been long enough for tonight. Let's stop here. It's a big, difficult subject. With this, we are concluding for tonight. Thank you all for joining, and I'll see you in the coming lectures about Shambhala. With this, we have finished.